of as citizens of this country, as managers of this landscape. It is completely irresponsible for us to be growing industrial products and feed for animals. We need to look at creating a fundamental shift in what it is that we grow here and at the same time, how we grow it. Because what organic does, again, is it utilizes, true real organic is utilizing bi biological processes to get the job done. And that was what created soil. It was how agriculture and plants first originated, animals being able to live on this landscape. All of that is tied to those biological processes. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots farmer-led movement with an add-on organic label that distinguishes soil-grown crops and pasture-raised livestock under the organic seal. You just heard from Dr. Chris Nichols. She's a soil microbiologist and she used to work at the USDA. Um, and so our paths actually crossed quite a bit and we even shared some former professors in common. So it's a great conversation. Um, she grew up on a grain farm in Minnesota and talked about what that was like uh, to kind of leave the farm and enter the research world. And last week when we talked, she talked about soil and soil life. And today we're going to explore the role of earth soil in carbon sequestration and really get into the environmental pros of farming. So let's get back to my conversation with Dr. Chris Nichols. Let's back up and just describe that, that beautiful, you know, transfer of carbon, um, you know, through photosynthesis and, and about how much plants put into the soil. Well, and that's a, a really interesting thing that we're, we're continuing to learn so much more about. I mean, it, it sort of used to be kind of a little bit of a, of a shorthand thinking where we would say that about 50% of the plant is above ground and about 50% of the plant is below ground. Depending on the plants, you may have more than that. And so, you know, then we started saying, well, you know, especially for perennial plants or other plants like that, what you have above ground really dwarfs what you have below ground. But what we were missing for so long is what comes out of the plant while it's growing. So when we would take measurements of biomass, it's at a point in time. So you measure above ground biomass at a point in time and you measure below ground biomass at a point in time. But as we're getting um, technology to get a better look at how carbon is moving, you do, the plant is doing photosynthesis the whole time it's growing. And so it's creating carbon molecules. And what we're finding is, you know, you can get uh, 50, even up in some cases to 70% of the photosynthate that is produced by the plant going below ground throughout the whole like, entire growth like season. Like exuded from the roots even so, or just going below ground? Below ground. And then from the root mass, you can get roughly about, you know, basically in the root mass, somewhere between 30 and 60% of that photosynthate can come out of the roots. Mm -hmm. So the majority of it is, so you get, you know, 40 to 70% of the photosynthate going below ground and roughly of that, that 40 to 70%, you may only get between 10 and 30 to 40% that's actually in the roots, 10 to 40% of that that's in the roots. And the rest of it is coming out of the roots and feeding, it's either, you know, in the mycorrhizal fungi, so it doesn't really come out of the roots in the mycorrhizal fungi because that happens inside the roots, but it's it's still part of those, those exudates that are coming out and feeding those microorganisms. And just like, you know, the largest organisms on the planet being mushroom-producing fungi, that all comes from photosynthate that was created by the plant. Now, again, it's taken a few thousand years for it to get that big. But when you think about it, it's, it's a tremendous amount of carbon that's going below ground. And again, think. Yeah. yeah. And again, when we talk about climate change, yes, you're going to get respiration. 
But if you can have 40 to 60% of the photosynthate that's formed by the plant potentially going through all of these different organisms and all of the different biomolecules that they're producing, that's all going to be ways in which the carbon is going to be stabilized below ground. Um, and we need to get this right just to mitigate what we've done, even if we cut fossil fuels yeah. usage right now, which we know we can't do. It's used to create, you know, we can right. we can certainly reduce them, but we need a little bit of fossil fuel use for plastics, for, you know, um, hospitals and, you know, some basic things we do need fossil fuels for. So right. we absolutely have to get this right. I'm wondering if you can kind of describe how we've lost carbon in the soil over time. Uh, with our agricultural practices and what the potential is to reverse that and and actually sequester carbon. Yeah. So again, like you said, we have to we have to be able to get this right and putting that carbon below ground and having it go through all of these different organisms becomes a big part of that. Um, and I just want to throw out there there was a, a paper and it's sort of now been a little bit. There's there's some thought processes that are changing as we look at soil organic matter. Um, for research scientists and, and other people. And there was a paper that came out. Um, it's, it's freely available. Um, it's, it's free access uh, by um, Dr. Johannes Lehman, um, you know, uh, a student of his, Kebler and, and Lehman. Um, and it came out in 2015. And Dr. Lehman is a professor at uh, Cornell University, and it's called The Contentious Nature of Soil Organic Matter. And what it is, is uh, Dr. Lehman actually has studied m pretty much all of his career humic substances and organic matter. And um, they used to look at humic substances as more of decomposition products. But what he has found is that as he's used a new technology to take a look at humic substances, that they're actually more sugars and proteins. So they're more biological. And so as we look at building up carbon in our soils, it's, it's all about how we can biologically, chemically, and physically stabilize the carbon, the, the simple photosynthetic sugars that are created. And again, so it's going, an anabolic process. You're actually building yeah. it up instead of a breakdown process. Right. And so that, that building it up, you know, that regeneration is about to me, is about going back to the origins of soil. And the origins of soil are mycorrhizal relationships with plants. So if we want to regenerate soil and get this right, we need to utilize that relationship and, and emphasize and maximize the efficiency of that relationship as much as we possibly can, because that's how it is that we're going to be able to do this. And as you said, if we stopped all emissions today, we are still going to be under the same patterns for at least a century, if not two centuries. There isn't a way to be able to change what has happened for a very long time. And the again, going back carbon to- carbon dioxide lasts a hundred years in our atmosphere. Right. I mean, it, yeah. so we, we are, even if we cut it right now, right now, we're gonna have to figure out how to draw down. We're gonna have to figure out how to draw down. And, and, and so, you know, this also goes back to why, why we should do this. Because one of the issues that we're confronting, again, is new pests and diseases because of climate change. Differing in temperature and humidity and climate conditions are actually changing the, the pests and diseases in environments. We're getting new organisms moving into environments, not just from, you know, introduction, but it's actually climate change that's inducing this. And we're also getting weather patterns that are completely uncertain. I mean, right now... Uh, and, you know, I know this will kind of be clipped later in, into things later, but right now, um, you know, we're getting one of the largest hurricanes, Laura, that's going to make landfall um, yeah. here, uh, I, I believe, tomorrow. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so uh, these are these huge climate events that we're getting, um, the windstorms that happened in Iowa and the devastation that was caused by that. Part of utilizing biological processes is they build within them that inherent resilience so that they can withstand these differing types of conditions because they have multiple pathways in order to be able to attack pests and diseases. They have multiple pathways in order to be able to get nutrients. 
to help the plants be able to, it's not just getting macronutrients, but micronutrients to help the plants be able to build better cell wall integrity so that they can be more resistant to devastating winds like we had in, in, in Iowa. Um, so you don't get the same level of lodging. That you're going to have the soil structure that when you have the storm surge from some of these large hurricanes, you actually have pathways for the water to be able to get into the soil. So all mm -hmm. of this is incredibly important, not just for an individual farmer from an economic standpoint, but for your ability as an individual farmer to stay on the land. And what we've done, I believe that our biggest problem, our only problem in agriculture is a carbon problem. It's the fact that we do not have enough soil and because soil is carbon. And what we've done with agriculture, and this has happened, we've seen civilizations collapse um, for hundreds and thousands of years based on agricultural events and the impact of sometimes weather impacts uh, for, for the Mayans. It was a combination and these are of- with organic practices back then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? So yeah. we can do organic wrong. Right. You know, and, and that's what they were doing. And, you know, but civil, their civilization grew so fast and they were utilizing, you know, a lot of the land um, for agriculture. And then you had a period of drought that came in and it just devastated because there wasn't that resilience that's there. And so when we do yeah. agricultural practices, when we outsource the jobs of the microbial communities because we add too much inputs so that they don't have any activities, they don't have a reason to get carbon from the plant, you don't get the formation of the aggregates. Right. So you don't get that spongy structure. Um, and we haven't even touched on the mycorrhizal fungi, fun, fungus's role in drought resistance, which is so key. Yes. Right? Uh, the abscisic acid formation. And uh, well, I'll let you kind of go into it. Yeah. So, yeah, um, you know, you've got several different, again, several different layers of drought resistance. One starts with the aggregates because you can keep more water for a longer period of time in that root zone. Um, you know, you also have the formation of various biochemicals that can help with managing the nutrients. Again, when you look at it, if, if you have that, that intimate relationship that we talked about where you had membrane against membrane and there was very little space here, you need nutrients are carried in water. And so there's very little water use that's happening and it's all happening on a cellular level if you had the phosphate solubilizing bacteria out here and then they followed the, the train back, that phosphorus is just moving in cellular water back into the root at this relationship. The only excess water that's needed is to carry it in that little space between the membranes. Everything else happens inside the cells. So there's no excess. If you had the phosphorus way out here and you were the root here, I'm the root, water is needed to carry this all the way here. So it takes more water in an environment where you don't have the mycorrhizal fungi to be able to do that transport of the nutrients. And that water is used in that process. Um, as you do things... Well, and I was touching on what the mycorrhizal fungus induces in the plant, which is a yes. hormone to actually allow for drought tolerance. Yes. And that's the... And I was just going to get to then yeah, the, the benefits so many... that it has for the plant, um, you know, uh -huh. inducing uh, the biochemical process for drought tolerance by the plant, and at the same time, also helping to reinforce things like cell wall structure and cell wall integrity so that you don't lose as much with evapotranspiration types of processes, that you're doing mm. things that are going to help to control stomatal opening and closing so that you don't have, again, that transpiration loss of water, the, the stomata, those holes in the plant leaves will open and close um, depending on biochemical processes. And so you've got that opening and closing that's going to be happening that, again, can be controlled by the the relationship with the mycorrhizal fungi and all of these things that are happening to to be able to induce the plant to have better drought tolerance. Um, you know, and we see this in the real world. 
you know, with the, the stomata is you'll, you'll have the leaves that will curl during the day and it's basically the stomata that are closing and they're shrinking. And so the leaves will curl and then they unfurl and open in the evening and at night when you've got um, that type of, a, of, of an environment. And so being able to manage the way that the plant is now managing water is going to be incredibly important as we move to the future as well. And that is something, again, where we, we've looked to try and do breeding processes to, to help to select for drought-tolerant varieties. But when we're just looking at just maybe controlling things like stomatal opening or the biochemistry of the plant itself, but not looking at all of these other multiple layers with the way that the water can be managed, from the water getting in to the water being held, to the way that the water is flowing through the solar environment, all of those things are gonna impact our drought tolerance. And we're gonna be living in an environment in which it is incredibly important for us to be looking at things like drought tolerance and um, these other issues. Yeah, you kind of touched on the fact that when we do research we on plants, we do it without their microbial partners. Yeah, that's a big problem. So yeah. I, I, th I want to ask you this question because it's something that I really struggled with personally in that when I started getting involved with the farmers and the organic movement, they had a real distaste for academia. And I had come out of an organic program and I was, you mm -hmm. know, I loved academia and I loved organic farming. Is that, do you kind of understand that... Um, that kind of hatred towards academia and, and kind of why it's there? Um, well, and, and I think that uh, there, there's, there's multiple layers of, of distrust that has happened kind of from both sides is, is the research community. Mm -hmm. It took the research community a very long time to get to the point of, of talking about organic and organic processes again, because everything was so focused above ground and it was focused on the plant, and it was focused about what chemically could we add, because we now had some understanding, we don't completely understand it, and we're definitely deficient in things like micronutrients and water and all of those types of things, but from a macronutrient standpoint, NPK became, okay, now we can control NPK, so we can have as much plant production as we want. And we were missing so many things within there. but we saw just this tremendous increase in production to the point where this was all that we were gonna focus on. And um, it became very much that way where for the organic community, when the organic community was trying to reach out to the scientific community to help get answers, the scientific community was like, yeah, that's just, yeah, it's, it's fun, it's nice to think about, but we need to produce a whole lot more than that, than you can possibly do. And so it, it's just, it's, it's such a minor player that we're just not going to pay attention to it. And, you know, so that I think formulated a lot of mistrust and a lot of negative feelings because, you know, the, the research community felt like it didn't really have to address the organic community because that was just such a small amount of what was going on in the environment. And that because of that, you know, the organic community felt like the research community wasn't going to be able to, to provide any answers to them. Um, and again, you know, when we focus a lot on research, research is very much to, to get the data and information and to see some of the patterns that you're looking for, you usually only want to modify one or two different things. You want to control everything else and you only need one or two different things so that you, you can actually see what the effect is. So it becomes really easy to add a chemical. I mean, when I, when I talk with, with, uh, farmers, it's like, yeah, I, I'm not going to dispute chemistry works the way chemistry works. You're going to, you add this, it's going to increase your yield. But here's the point. There, there are other consequences to that. We're finding, like I said, because we focused on macronutrients, we don't have micronutrients. So we're getting plants that have less structural stability because we aren't getting the formation of antioxidants and other biomolecules that are important to the structural wall structural integrity. 
So now that, you know, that's tied to micronutrients. So now we're going to add micronutrients. Yeah, but you're still going to be missing something because we're also finding that various types of amino acids are coming directly from microorganisms. And so that's the only way in, we can, in which we can get certain types of amino acids that are needed. How do we deal with that? And so again, we could keep adding all of these things on top of there, but because we look at things under very controlled conditions as scientists in order to be able to get the data and see the relationships that we're looking for, it's incredibly messy to say, I have a relationship with mycorrhizal, the, the plant has a relationship with mycorrhizal fungi. We've been studying this for well over a hundred years and we still don't know very much about how this actually happens. How the relationship gets in, induced, what are all of the signals that have to occur, how, you know, why the mycorrhizal fungus, you know, we, we're getting information about why the fungus grows in the direction it grows, but we still don't fully understand that. And so it's far easier to work with just chemistry and see what that reaction is going to be because a chemical reaction will occur the way that you want it to occur. Part of the issue is, is that works really well in controlled conditions on a bench top, but not really well in a biologically based environment in the soil. So you, you can't do that very easily. And again, going back to this, when we're looking at the microorganisms, it's not just one microorganism that's doing this, it's a whole community. And that community is, it's, it's difficult for us to be able to do research to understand what those community effects are. And so- Yeah, and you and I are both mycologists, so we get skewed towards that direction, but you know, we haven't even touched on plant growth promoting rhizobacteria or viruses and their role in the cycle. You know, the majority of viruses are good. And yeah. uh, I think we just really lack knowledge there, at least um, the, the scientists that are doing that work aren't coming to the forefront and we really need them to, to kind of make that knowledge, uh, uh, you know, beyond the, the paper that they're producing, but, uh, you know, so that the public can greater understand what they're doing. I'm and wondering that's... if you have a comment about that Nature article that came out, I think it was in 2012, so it was a while ago, but you may have been at Rodale when they wrote a response to it. And it basically was saying, because organic is less productive per acre on average, that, um, it's not the answer because uh, you can then put more acreage out of agriculture and put it back into forests, which would be better for, you know, for the world. Uh, what were they missing there? First of all, do you agree with that uh, <laughs> conclusion? And and if not, what were they not thinking of? Um, well, uh, yeah, I don't agree with with their conclusions. I think that that one. Um, uh, one, just going back into forestry, taking acreage into, into forestry, um, if you're looking at this from a climate change perspective, uh, agroforestry is not the entire answer to climate change. There isn't, there isn't one answer and there isn't one solution. And putting acreage into to forests is, it's, it's, it's a long-term type of thing because it takes a long time for those forests to get to that point of of production and forest systems are typically very low in carbon in the soil because most of the carbon is above ground and so yeah if you stabilize and you don't cut down that forest and all of that kind of stuff yeah you're keeping the the carbon locked up there for as long as the tree is growing and not rotting and, and those types of things but after that what happens the largest stable environment for carbon on the planet is below ground. There's more carbon below ground than the entire environment above ground and the atmosphere combined. So below ground, you have that opportunity for the carbon to be there and to be stored there. And part of what we've done is we took the carbon that was below ground and put it into the atmosphere. Fossil fuels, we, we took the carbon that was stored there and put that into the atmosphere. We also lost carbon 
when we did when we were doing agriculture. Um, you know, we we burned off a lot of carbon in doing tillage and, and breaking up those those structures. So you can't you can't solve the issue of climate change by just looking at things from that standpoint. It also is a thing where when we look at, at organic production, again, I don't agree with the fact that organic production has to be seen as a lower amount of production than conventional production. Um, and especially as we move forward in um, one, using more of our agricultural landscape to actually grow food. Um, you know, we've, we've always talked about the United States as being the country that feeds the planet. Our major crops are produce industrial products and feed for animals. That's what we grow in this country. We don't grow food for people. We produce industrial products and feed for animals. That and is we import organic grain. We import organic <laughs> grain. We import organic food. We import almost all of the food we eat other than than meat we import all of that stuff we're not growing food in this country we have some of the best land on the planet and it is completely irresponsible for us as land managers as farmers as as the as as managers of as citizens of this country as managers of this landscape it is completely irresponsible for us to be growing industrial products and feed for animals. We need to look at creating a fundamental shift in what it is that we grow here and at the same time how we grow it. Because what organic does again is it utilizes true real organic is utilizing bi biological processes to get the job done. And that was what created soil. It was how agriculture and plants first originated, animals being able to live on this landscape. All of that is tied to those biological processes. Now, granted, we have more people now than, you know, the, the, the number of animals that we have is greater to a certain degree just because of human population. Um, but that's debatable. I mean, when you look at the number of bison that there were or other animals that there were, it's, it's hard to say as to if, if human biomass is greater now than in, at, at any other time, the animal biomass that we had. It's all about how carbon is, is, is moving through um, the system. But again, when we look at productivity and resilience and that ability to continue with that, that is going to be tied to utilizing the biological processes that real organic agriculture uses. We need to have those processes in place because that is the way, again, we address issues with how we're going to be managing water so we don't get the flooding. When I was in North Dakota and I talked about the Red River Valley, we flood, the Red River is not very deep. It's about 20 feet deep is the deepest that that river is. And it floods almost annually now. That shouldn't be something that occurs. We should be able to manage the water coming in as we manage that in our landscape. We should be able to manage. So it isn't just about the individual production, but again, I don't think that the individual production, because of the resiliency that you can have with organic production utilizing biological processes, long-term, that whole thing with the curves that I was talking about, long-term production is going to be higher in organic processes, under organic, real organic processes, than under conventional processes, especially in the next century. As we look at the pressures that we're going to start to see climatically, there is no way that a conventional landscape is going to be able to outproduce an organic landscape, a biologically true organic, real organic, biologically based landscape. Yeah, I agree. Without all those external costs and, you know, just connecting the dots and all our cycles again, our water cycles broken, our nitrogen cycles broken, our carbon cycles broken. So, you know, even if it does yield higher 
it doesn't matter. You yeah. know, it's very short-term thinking. So what is, what is organic getting wrong right now? What is USDA organic getting wrong? And what, you know, what, what, how could we fix it? What, how could we turn things around? So what organic is getting wrong in, in my mind, uh, is that again, it, 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 it's left a lot of its origins in a lot of the, the biology that matters. It's become more about let's just replace with, it's, it's more about replacement technology. Let's just replace synthetics with organics. And it's almost let's replace prohibited synthetics with allowed synthetics. I mean, yes, yeah, it's the point right. It's exactly. It's not, it's not changing the system and it's not relying on biological processes, which I was talking about, you know, and have been emphasizing the biological processes are the key here with, with um, the way that uh, the organic program is designed right now is um, again, it's, it's about that replacement. And it's also more about what you shouldn't do than what you should. It's more about the stick than it is about the carrot. And just in, in, in working with farmers um, and growing up in farm country, um, one of the things I, from Minnesota in the Midwest, and, you know, it's, it's not a big organic environment in, in that area. There's, there's small spots of it, but it's not a big organic production environment. And a lot of that is because you know, of the way that organic is perceived. And some of that perception happens because farmers don't want to be told what to do all of the time. They don't want to be told what to do and they don't want to be told that they're bad, that they're wrong. And the way that the organic program and the organic standards work is, again, it's more about the stick than the carrot. It's more about shaming you for practices that you do than encouraging you and building you up and saying, hey, let's let's look at these beautiful relationships that exist here and let's tap into that. It's more, if you don't do this, you're bad. And if you don't do this, you're bad. And if you do this, you're good. And when it becomes- It's not so black and white. You know, we're yeah. finding there are organic practices like over tillage or the use of some of the synthetics on the nationalist, the overuse of them, those yeah. are just as bad. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and so, you know, I think that it is something in which we have an opportunity um, to really be able to get more of this going with um, real organic and what, that is, what this is tied to biologically processes. And again, it also is going back to what it is that we need. And truly what we need is high quality, nutritious food. Like I said, we grow a tremendous amount in this country. It's primarily industrial products and feed for animals. And what little we do feed to humans is empty carbohydrates. We don't need empty carbohydrates. We need food. And, and so um, organic, uh, the organic program, Again, because it is, is, is so much based around those rules, and it is far easier to make rules around telling people what they can't do than to really make rules about um, how you can work with the soil, because we don't know so much about that. And, you know, soil, we can't monetize. So this isn't a product that you can, you can sell or you can manage in such a way that it's, it's like the true heart of, of organic, again, goes back to the soil and the origins of soil. But if you can't monetize that, how do you actually have a program based around that? Because you need to have some sort of monetary flow in order to be able to have people employed to do the work to make sure that, you know, practices are being put in place, that you are creating rules, all of it. it, it it's so hard to look at that. Um, 
and, and to be able to look at how you might be able to resolve those issues. But again, I think that the opportunity that we have here is really based on the opportunity that we can have to start providing the food that we need to have. Um, and as we look at that and as we look at things, I mean, in the United States in particular because of the way our healthcare is designed, but even the, the COVID crisis has shown this on a global scale we have a, a healthcare system. Our physical health is is at a point that we can't afford this anymore. Not just in the U.S., but everywhere. And so we need to be able to do this in a different way than what we're currently doing. Do you think that the nutrition in the crops is inherently linked to the health of the soil? Oh yes. Oh, yes. and, and do we have evidence to that or it just is based on, you know, the ability of the life in the soil to kind of get at all those nutrients? Um, I think that we have some evidence of that and, and it's evidence that's growing. And well, it, what is your, you're on the Real Organic Project Advisory Board and I'm curious to know what your hopes are for what we can do, whether we're making any progress now or, you know, what, what you see, what you hope we can accomplish. So I, I, I'm hoping, and again, I see it as so incredibly important that we can get ourselves to this place because it's, it's critical for us to be there of organic being tied to biological processes, that this is the thing that is, is the driver, that the soil and the biology is the driver. And um, having, you know, the, the Real Organic Project that is um, working with things like this to help to provide education and letting uh, people know and increasing the understanding of all of this and also increasing the understanding of what organic really is. Um, when I was working at Rodale uh, and first got introduced um, to the Real Organic Project, but just prior to that, I was also working with a, a non-GMO group. And it was interesting to me because they would do a lot of surveys of people. Um, that would tell people, you know, one ask people questions about how they viewed things like non-GMO and how they viewed organic and, you know, product comparisons and those types of things. And for the consumer, there were in those surveys, more often than not, the consumer felt that non-GMO was actually better than organic. Hmm. Because to them, non-GMO, they they attached that to genetic modification. Glyphosate. <laughs> attached it to glyphosate. Exactly. They yeah. attached it instantaneously to no pesticides. And organic had become a thing where they didn't really understand what it was. And that there was a lot of controversy and you found, you know, you'd have articles that would come out about um, various organizations that didn't comply with the standards and you had, you know, issues with uh, people were raising about, you know, food safety issues. And, and so it just, it, it started to explode into this thing where the average consumer doesn't understand and education for the average consumer, as well as other individuals within the supply chain, how the Real Organic Project can help with, with that and helping to provide that education as well as, again, helping to get the standards to fit within what organic really is and how organic, where, where organic should rest, that, that origin should rest with soil. So I think that that's, that's an important part of it. The other really important part with it though is again, that, that whole idea of, of education and knowledge. And, and what the consumer doesn't understand about what standards and labels mean. And, you know, again, that whole idea of non-GMO means no glyphosate. And it doesn't. I mean, right. it can, but it doesn't. <laughs> That's not an automatic thing in there. Um, and, yeah. and so... Would you, would you just explain why with the desiccants and just touch on that? Yeah. Um, well, and, and non-GMO um, basically 
doesn't mean that you can't, there, there isn't anything in non-GMO that doesn't mean that you can't use synthetic chemicals or synthetic pesticides at any point in time in the process. Um, and the other thing with desiccants and those types of things is glyphosate has become not just the go-to product for weed pest management, but um, for marketing purposes, when you're trying to manage your harvest times to get the highest value, you want to get the products in, you want to be the first to market. It's always the way that you want to have it. And so what they've started to use glyphosate for is as a desiccant so that they can kill the plant, they can terminate it at a particular time, so it will change their harvest states. So they're able to um, be able to harvest and potentially gain more from that. Um, Non-GMO itself, again, the only thing with non-GMO within those standards is that you're not using a genetically modified organism, um, particularly a genetically modified seed. But there isn't anything within those standards that are non-pesticide use. There's nothing in the, the, the non-GMO standards that are related to synthetic fertilizers or anything like that. That's, that's just... It should have been an add-on label. Yeah. Right. And so there are, again, when I was working with the non-GMO working group, one of the things we talked about was um, they were looking at doing what was called non-GMO plus, which was basically that add-on label that you would have with non-GMO that would be able to show that you're not using synthetic chemicals. Um, but again, this goes back to that whole idea of marketing and how this happens. And, and for organic, organic had a standard and it had a label and it had a seal. But for the consumer, the great thing that non-GMO did was they created the butterfly seal. Because the consumer now has a, again, it's something that pulls on your heartstrings. It's something that sort of makes you feel like it's, it's safe and ecological because you have this beautiful little butterfly. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, um, Meanwhile, you can use insecticides yeah. that kill the butterflies. Which kill the butterflies, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it is a, a, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a, it, marketing is a big thing. And, and knowledge is a, to me, knowledge is a big thing. Um, we live, first world countries have incredible opportunities and incredible um, responsibilities to provide education and to provide information. And, you know, yeah, I get it. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. But if you lead them to enough water troughs, eventually it'll put its head in and drink. And we have to have enough of those water troughs out there, enough of that information out there so that people have that knowledge base and they know what it is that they're, they're doing and what it is that they're looking for. Um, and I think I'm I am worried, hopeful you know, for the next generation because I think that that's they're they're a generation that utilizes their cell phones. They're a generation that's looking for that information, and if we can yeah. provide it, it 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 can happen. It takes so much patience, and you know, you and I could probably talk for days and have so much fun walking on, you know, <laughs> why soil life is important. And some people are into it and will listen and get excited about it too, but. You know, I worry just the level of education that it takes to explain real organic, deep organic, regenerative organic, whatever word we want to describe, it's a lot of information, to, you know, connecting all those dots, all the broken cycles. You know, I, I guess I have a lot of concern that we're, we're going to wonk out in our own groups, but that we're not going to reach that consumer at that consumer level. What can we do to reach them? Well, and, and, and so we do have to to keep being diligent and we have to go outside of our own comfort zones. We have to, we have to take the initiative um, to reach out, not just with consumers, but also with, with other farmers. You have to have a conversation about, um, you know, one of the, the things that, that sometimes too, I think within the organic movement is the organic movement, um, it's, it's, it's a wonderful community and, and talking with people, you know, again, we can walk out and, and all of those types of things. But 
so many of the people within the organic community don't reach out beyond the organic community. They don't reach out and have conversations with a number of people. They don't, you know, the organic community, just like with the research community and the scientific community and the organic community sort of being at odds because of a, of, of a long-term history that existed there, that, that is changing. And we both have to acknowledge that and we both have to, to push each other. Um, on those things. The same thing is true for the organic community reaching out a lot more to the regenerative community, even beyond the, the organic regenerative community, reaching out to and working with, um, you know, within the conventional community. Like I said, you know, I would, and sometimes organic producers would get upset at me for saying this, but I said, you know, you have to think of, of tillage, you have to think of, you know, your overuse of, of these chemicals, even if they're considered to be certified organic, think of that in the same way that you want a conventional producer to think about the aesthetics that they're using. You know? Yeah, when there's we're, always when we're, a road for improvement, no matter right. where you're at. Right. Yeah. You know, when we're talking about rock phosphate, you can use rock phosphate in organic. The difference between conventional rock phosphate and organic rock phosphate is the treating of, of conventional rock phosphate with an acid. That doesn't mean that it wasn't mined and, and removed from the soil <laughs> and processed yeah. <laughs> in yeah. some way. That that yeah. it, it still is that. Um, mm -hmm. So you have to acknowledge that. And that doesn't mean that you – and I'm not trying to shame any organic producers into, into any of that. But you have to acknowledge. And that's part of the education is part of what we have to do is acknowledge mm – -hmm where controversies exist and acknowledge the issues that exist and acknowledge the similarities and, and, and how we can bring all of that together. Um, and it doesn't mean because we have these little nuanced problems that we walk away from the whole thing and discredit right. the whole thing, right? right? It right. means we need to address them, acknowledge them, and figure out a better way. Yeah. 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 We don't, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't, it, it isn't, it, it is about us, and it's and it's a continuous learning process as well. And that is one thing that I will have to say that I think has always been good about. It, it's not always been effectual in in the right ways, but it's a good thing about the organic standards. Is the organic standards board has they're constantly trying to meet and have discussions and evolve. So it, it, it's not a static standard. Yeah, Again. I had a conversation with Dave Mortensen yesterday, who's on the board right now, and he said, God, I wish we could talk about something else besides these materials on the national list and really dive into some of the bigger questions that we all have to, to get organic to a new place. Yeah, so it would be nice. I mean, they, they created an infrastructure to do that it's just again. It's it's like many things when you create a board or an infrastructure. It it somehow can get steered in a direction that isn't necessarily helpful. <laughs> and yeah. so how can we how can we? And that's part of what the real organic project is trying to do is, you know, steer, steer it, it back. back. We didn't intend to just go over and over these two hundred materials on the national right. list. It's of course it's an important process. But it's almost like that's not what the National Organic Standards Board members are good at. These right. deep thinkers. Yes. Right? And, and we used the example yesterday of like, I don't know the nuances of a boiler chemical, right, that I'm trying to renew or not. Of course, there's pros and cons. And I, you know, but th there are experts out there that could make these decisions in a democratic way. And maybe the role of the National Organic Standards Board should be shifted away from just approving or not the, the nationalist materials, but into... Actually, like maybe we should push soil health standards or, or you know, try to figure out how to actually enforce the grazing rules or, or get chickens back on pasture. You know, some of these bigger questions that they all want to tackle. Yes. Yeah. And, and so, again, you know, it's it's the what I was saying is the great thing is the infrastructure is there. And, yeah. and it started from the infrastructure being there because it wasn't so much. You know, I talked about the fact that I get frustrated with, with the organic standards because it's more about the stick than the carrot. And the organic standards board's meetings are more about the stick than the carrot. 
They're yeah. more about what you shouldn't do and, and, and less about the, the options and opportunities that we have. I mean, yeah. you know, you start thinking about biologically process, biological processes and it's like you're, the, the, the sky is not even the limit. It is you have so many options and opportunities. And yeah, that can make it more difficult because then, you know, when, when you're in a standard base that is trying to define and, and make sure, you know, those options and opportunities are, are regulated in some way, that becomes onerous. And, and so how do yeah. we get it back to, to that, that focus? And the Organic Foods Production Act is actually a beautiful piece of legislation that could, you know, guide us to getting back there. Um, I want to uh, reward the people that have stuck with us because when I said I was to some of my friends, my my other farmer friends, when I said I was interviewing you, they said, "Ask her about how nitrogen, you know, isn't just happening for legumes." Like, I want to know if, if we can fix nitrogen for other plants, if other plants have these symbioses. Is, is this new emerging research? Everybody's really excited to talk about this. So this is the bonus for everybody yeah. who's stuck with us. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, nitrogen fixation, not just by uh, the, the symbiotic organisms, has always existed. I mean, these organisms have always existed. Um, one of the things that has really become popularized right now is sort of the nitrogen fixing corn. Everybody's kind of excited about that, this idea. Um, and really what it is, is those nitrogen fixers are, they are um, asymbiotic. So they're not, they're not directly related in the same way that um, the, uh, Rhizobium bacteria are the the symbiotic nitrogen fixtures are, but um, they are very much dependent on the exudates that are coming from the plant, and especially the exudates that are coming um, at at the the soil surface or coming from um, part of. So you'll get like with this nitrogen fixing corn, what they'll see is sort of sugars coming down the stalk that are helping to feed this community of uh, nitrogen fixing organisms. So they're still relying on the carbon coming from the plant, but it's not in that same type of, of intimate relationship. And again, these organisms have been around for a very long time, for, for millions of years. Um, but Are they using nitrogenase? Is it like only evolved once and it has to be in an anaerobic environment or is this a different way of fixing nitrogen? Um, so from my understanding is is that it it is very similar to so it's it's all following a very similar type of mechanism that's happening um but uh they have and and so they have differing abilities and differing ways of being able to manage that but again nitrogen fixation is going to happen mostly anaerobically um because uh when you have um Oxygen, if you have it in an aerobic environment, it changes the way, the ability to break that triple bond and then to form um, nitrate or ammonia is, is different. Um, so, you know, you don't get the same chemicals. So it's, it's, it's a different mechanism that's happening there, but um, very similar uh, types of things, the processes that are happening. And um, what, what is also interesting about this was, uh, again, several years ago when I was back in North Dakota, I was working with some some farmers in Australia, and um, they were growing wheat and hadn't been adding nitrogen fertilizer for several years to their fields, and we're pretty much in a continuous wheat production system, continuous grass production system, so no legumes. They hadn't put any legumes in, but hadn't been adding nitrogen fertilizer, and it's like, well, you know, they do testing, and they're not nitrogen, their, their plants are not nitrogen stressed. So where is this nitrogen fixation coming from and how is this happening? And again, it's sort of like it's always been there, but you have to have the plant getting in just in the same way with everything else is the plant has to give off those chemicals and it will only, they'll only give off those chemicals if there's a certain need to have that happen. And 
they're not going to give off the exudates, whether that comes from more foliar tissue, the sugars coming out of there, or it comes from their roots. If the plant doesn't have the need, if the stress doesn't exist, that's not going to occur. And the way that we manage most of our systems is that we are basically cutting that out. We're outsourcing that job of those organisms. Um, and so, you know, again, getting them back active and getting that to happen. And when we look at nitrogen fixation, on a global scale, when they're measuring things about nitrogen fixation, the amount of nitrogen fixation that they'll have from symbiotic and asymbiotic organisms uh, is far more than the synthetic nitrogen fixation that we have, that we use for agriculture. So, wow. you know, a lot of people look at this and say, we can't have the same level of production if we just went for these symbiotic organisms. This is happening at, you know, just at the, the, the same scale, at a little bit larger scale, but about the same scale as what happens for synthetic nitrogen fixation. And we're not even trying we're not designing systems around trying to optimize these nitrogen fixation processes. Think about right. what we could do if we put a little bit of effort into it to get these biological processes to happen. And that's, again, it's the same thing of, you know, when we look at things like phosphorus, we're going to run out of phosphorus fertilizer. We have a, a limited timestamp on phosphorus fertilizer. Um, and it's not that phosphorus is going away. It's not that it's leaving the planet. It's still here. It's just not in the right place um, and not in a place that's going to be easy for us to access and utilize it. Um, it's mostly flushed down our rivers and our oceans, yeah, now, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, at, at one point in time, if we don't start using biology to utilize the night to utilize the phosphorus that is in our soils, because most of our soils are not phosphorus limited. Most of our soils on this planet are not phosphorus limited. They're phosphorus available limited, but they're not phosphorus limited. We have plenty of phosphorus in our soils. We just don't utilize the biology to get access to it. Nitrogen, we're not nitrogen limited on this planet. Our atmosphere is mostly nitrogen gas. We do not have a nitrogen limitation issue. We have a nitrogen availability issue that biology knows how to solve and has solved before we ever came here before we ever evolved they figured this stuff out and so all that we need to do is go back into it and our our choices are we either do that or again we use a whole lot of, of energy and resources and have a tremendous climatic impact on trying to up our nitrogen fixation <laughs> to the level that we normally get biologically to offset that. And for phosphorus, we're going to have to try and mine it out of the Gulf of Mexico. That's going to be fun and cheap. <laughs> so again, it's like <laughs> we have choices. <laughs> your choice is this or your choice is that. What is it that you're going to do? You know, when I talk to people about a lot of this sometimes, too, is I'll say our issue with colonizing the moon or colonizing Mars is not that we don't have the technology. I'm not saying that we don't know how to do it. I mean, if we needed to mine phosphorus out of the Gulf of Mexico, I can guarantee that we either already know how to do it or we know how to create the technology to do it. The issue is, is that nobody can afford to do it from a monetary value as well as an environmental value. But, you know, when it comes to colonizing the moon and colonizing Mars, our big issues with that is not that we don't know how to get people there. It's not that we don't know. I mean, all of those are issues we've solved. The issue is, is that nobody can afford to keep people there when we don't know about how to produce soil and we're not focusing on producing soil. So we need to look at this very intimately in order to be able to address those issues before we're paying writing checks that we can't afford to pay. Yeah, and there's a sense of urgency right now. My goodness, we have waited too long. Yeah, well, thank you, Chris. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, it was fun. 
Thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you'll subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a rating and review. A video version of this interview, as well as the full transcript with links related to our conversation, is found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 48. Please join us next time when we'll share a special episode to kick off the beginning of season two of the Real Organic Podcast. You'll hear from many farmers as we explore the issues we face in the marketplace and revisit why our add-on food label exists. To find a Real Organic farm near you, visit realorganicproject.org forward slash farms. See you next time.